morning. If you would, go ahead and turn in your copy of God's Word to Galatians chapter 4. That's where we're going to be in just a moment. And as you get there, I want to welcome you today. We have prayed for this time together. We've prayed for you, especially if you're a guest here today. And if you are a guest, we'd love to get some information from you. There's a card in the seat back in front of you. You can fill it out, drop it in the give boxes on your way out, and we will contact you in a respectful way. If you are our guest, our hope today and every week that we gather is to make much of King Jesus and what he's done on the behalf of everyone who believes. And so our invitation to everyone today, whether we come here already believing or just somewhat skeptical, is just to see this King of glory and what he's done for us um, through Jesus Christ. And so today, this is week number nine as we're walking through the book of Galatians. So we've been here for a while, and if you're showing up, this is your first time here. Um, hopefully you will not be lost by where we're at. I'll just give you kind of a recap. There's a group of people who come to faith in Jesus Christ, and then after they came to faith, some other people came in and distracted them and told them some lies about how they could be right with God. They added some unnecessary burdens to this group of people, and they believe it, hook, line, and sinker, and Paul is absolutely frustrated with this group of people. He's writing this letter out of his frustration, out of his concern and care, and he's saying, what are you doing? How could you leave the gospel for this other alternative that's not even the gospel and it has no power to change you, no power to save you? And for the next several weeks, he's going to be laying out, and, and the weeks behind us, and then this week, and the week ahead, he's going to be laying out this comparison and contrast. Look, we don't want to be slaves anymore to the law. We want to be children and act like children of God. And so he's laying that out again in this passage. And I want you to join me as I read it and read along with me, asking God to bless the reading of his word in our hearts to be good soil to receive it. Would you pray that with me as we read, starting in verse 1? I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he's the owner of everything, but he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this word. I pray that we would be ready to receive it today and that our hearts would be glad recipients of this very, very good news. That you would call us your children and then deposit your spirit in everyone who believes. And that your spirit would cry out, even in this moment, Abba, Father, dearest Father, for all of us who are trusting alone in you, I pray that we would just be confirmed once again. That today would be a great affirmation that you alone are enough, and that there's nothing we could do to add to that or to take away from what you've done for everyone who believes. I pray this for the sake of your great name, Jesus. Amen. One of the realities in my home is that weekly I get reminded that there's a day coming when my kids will be free of me. 
Okay. There's a day when I will no longer be their guardian and they will get to set the rules for themselves. And I get weekly reminders of this reality, um, not just from one, but from most of my kids, that there's a day coming where they will no longer be under my guardianship, but they'll be able to make choices on their own. And so there's some dynamic that he's about to illustrate that's the opposite of that, that they moved from having a guardian to slavery, uh, back, to a, back to slavery. And this principle that he's laying out in this passage and all throughout Galatians is as if you look to something other than God to satisfy your thirst, to make you right before God, to make you blessed, if you look to something other than God himself, it will ultimately and continually disappoint you. And at some point, it will enslave you. I'm going to say that again. If you look to anything other than God himself to satisfy your soul or to make you right before him, it will not satisfy you. It will disappoint you and ultimately it will enslave you. There's this universal longing for freedom, for the ability not to be a slave to things, to have the ability not to be bossed around by things. This longing for freedom, Paul is tapping into and saying, this is ultimately what God has given you through Christ Jesus. And as he writes this letter, his audience had gone back to acting as if they were slaves. And so there's a few things that I'm going to point out from this text. There's other things than this, but there's ultimately these three things. They would remember their slavery, that they would remember what it means that they were once enslaved to these elementary principles. Second, that they would remember their Savior, what Christ had done and how he had arrived and what he had accomplished for them. And then ultimately, that we would remember our sonship through Jesus Christ. So that's where we're heading. Just to continue to recap, Paul's writing to this group of people who've received the gospel, but they've turned back to slavery, and he says at the beginning with this illustration, you're acting no different from a slave. He's saying, I want you to remember that you were slaves, but now you're not slaves, you're not intended to be. And though he owns everything, although we own everything, we're acting no different from a slave. That's what he's pointing out to the Galatians. Now, at this point in history, it would be very different than what our American understanding of slavery would be. Uh, Thomas Sowell uh, has said slavery existed in the world for thousands of years. Whites enslaved other whites. Lots of people were enslaved due to debt. It wasn't based on ethnicity. It was based, it was a way of saying that we're at the very bottom of the totem pole, bottom of the hierarchy, the bottom of the barrel, literally having very little choices due to dead or other circumstances. And so Jews and Gentiles would have understood what this means to be enslaved. Gentiles, slaves to their previous life of idolatry, which he's going to point out in this passage and again next week, and then Jews going back to slavery under the law. So they both had to do with what they were told. They had to do what they were told, okay? So Gentiles, Jews, both of them. And he gives this illustration that they're like kids who have inherited a very large estate, much bigger than any inheritance that any person in this room will ever receive from a previous generation. So I want you to imagine this incredible inheritance that they've, got, that they've received. And because they aren't old enough to manage this state, there's a guardian that waits until the time set by the father, the appointed age when the child will come to the inheritance. So he's saying it's kind of like you're under this guardian and manager. It's quite different from a loving father, right? It's a different picture. So Paul's saying you guys are going back to this reality that you have someone telling you what you can and cannot do. 
You're going back to the law, and he's adding more to the requirement of faith, unnecessary burdens like I already mentioned, and they're waiting for this appointed time like the Jewish and Greek cultures when they would come of age for the bar mitzvah for a Jewish boy, when they would be brought into adulthood. Or for the Greek, they would be under the care of the the government until they got to a certain point. They were under this, and Paul's saying, you're returning to that kind of behavior. The guardianship was something that was intended to usher them into this new reality of a relationship with God based on Jesus Christ and his redemption. But instead, they're still behaving and acting as if they're slaves. So for a child that's under a guardianship, they say they're like slaves because they didn't have the inheritance that belonged to them. They owned everything, but they didn't have access to it. And they had to do as they were told. And then he compares it to this memory. He says, all of us, when we were children, were like that. There was a previous point where we were enslaved, Jews, Gentiles. We were kids. And in this moment where he's saying, back when you were children, he's provoking memory. One of the things I was reminded of this week as we had our prayer and worship night here is that we remembered what Christ had done. And all throughout the book of Deuteronomy, there's several reminders where it says, I want you to remember that you were enslaved. I want you to remember your slavery. There's a reason that God wants us to remember this, to provoke our memories for the times when we didn't have a say-so on what would happen with our lives, either due to sin or due to some attempt to be made right with God. Either way, we can be enslaved by religion or rebellion, but either way, he wants us to remember this when we were kids. Now, moving back to Mississippi in this last year, I've run into a lot of people that I'm somewhat familiar with, and they remember me from 20 years ago, and I'm hoping that they've forgotten lots of things from 20 years ago. But there's this calling to memory that he, he calls them to. I want you to remember that you were enslaved to elementary principles. Now, this can apply to both the law and to the elementary principles. He's going to go on further in this chapter to describe how they were giving themselves to idolatry. So uh, when he says elementary principles, that was attached to these idols that were attached to forces of the world. In other words, material reality. They were uh, attached to earth, wind, air, fire, all these things were idols that they knew how the world behaved And it was either demonic or just a secular reality that, hey, in the future, I have to live in such a way that I appease these things. Now, for us, there are similar secular humanistic pursuits, all sounding like Proverbs and wisdom without God himself. They're always being offered to us. And he's saying, I want you to remember this because there's a way that we can be in, enslaved again. The gospel can be rejected either through rebellion from it or some other attempt to survive based on some elementary principles. So earning God's approval through the law or earning our inheritance on this earth through some type of elementary pursuit. So how should we think about these things? The rule of nature, the rule of Moses, how should we think about these principles? Either way... Both have the ability to enslave you, to disappoint you, to be limited in what they can provide for you. And so how should we think? Is the law bad? I already went over this a couple weeks ago. No, by no means. The law's not bad. Jesus didn't want to dismiss the law. I love how John Stott said it, and he says it like this. It's going to be on the screen. What Paul means is that, that's not it. Sorry. 
I'll just read this. How about that? Paul means it that the devil took this good thing, the law, and twisted it to his own evil purpose in order to enslave men and women. Now, this is on the screen. Just as during a child's minority, his guardianship may ill-treat and even tyrannize him in ways which his father never intended. Next slide. This is going to be up there. So the devil has exploited God's good law in order to tyrannize men in ways God never intended. God intended the law to reveal sin and to drive men to Christ. Satan uses it to reveal sin and to drive men to despair. God intended the law to be this good gift to show us who he is and how he works and how it might drive us to our need for Christ. It was intended to be a good guardian. But the enemy, our accuser, the deceiver, intends for it to cause us to despair, to be, as John Stott calls it, a cul-de-sac with no room for turning around. And many of us, though we do not live by the law of Moses, like if I were to ask you a quiz on the law of Moses, you might get like, you know, eight of the ten commandments right. We're not like worried about the Levitical law. We're not concerning ourselves on a day-to-day basis. But there's a way in which we're prone towards this. It's like the thing that I've mentioned before. It's like our car's out of alignment. We're prone towards the ditch of thinking that we might earn something before God based on something that we could do. And so in order for us to apply this, we have to remember both that we were once enslaved to these elementary principles, either the law or just the way that the world works in order to gain some kind of inheritance, in order to earn something for ourselves that God intended to give us for free. And so for us to apply this, we have to ask the question, are we being tyrannized by the demands of our own prideful attempts at being good enough or by our own guilt for not being good enough? Because either way, it doesn't lead us to our Redeemer and our Savior who redeemed us while we were under the law who rescued us when we didn't have a way. There was no bankruptcy law. There was no way of getting out of the demands of the law. And so in that moment, when we were under this law, under the enslavement of the pressures of this world, under our own attempts and our prideful attempts to be good enough, right enough, long enough, God said, I'm sending my son at the perfect moment. That need for redemption sometimes feels very distant when we don't feel the pressure of the law of Moses or we're just unfamiliar. It just feels like this distant reality. But for everyone who's in Christ, it's important for us to remember this reality that we were once enslaved, either to the passions and lusts of our flesh, demanding and giving us no other ability to say no to things, or to our own attempts of religion. And either of those will tyrannize us and enslave us. And so, the ways that your conscience provokes you to remember everything that you wish you could forget. The message of Christ is to be free. For the parents who wish you would have done something different than the way that you did, the things that you feel you need to do that you haven't yet done, for the things that you long to do but you feel like there's no way in order to pursue them, for some of the people in your career, every opportunity that you imagined for yourself and all of its demands that you were not able to pursue, in all of those disappointments, in all of the ways that you fear that you've lost your way and there's no way out, an empty cul-de-sac, that's what we need to remember that, that God delivers us from and invites us to be his children. 
So does not your own conscience condemn you if you uh, are trusting in your own strength? Or does not your conscience confirm you if you're trusting in your own strength? The law was given as a system that was meant to lead us towards Christ. If we live by the law, we're either going to be self-righteous or self-satisfied with our own ability of sobriety, our own will and mastery of discipline, or we'll be self-hating, confused by our own lack of ability, condemned. So one leads to judgment of ourselves. One leads to judgment of everyone around us, but Christ offers us something that we couldn't do for ourselves. And on this day, my hope for us as we remember this moment, that we remember it clearly enough so that we could hear the invitation of Christ once again to lay down our own attempts at being right enough, good enough, long enough, and to be embraced in relationship by him, our Father God, without any expense to ourselves. So what does it mean to believe? To come to terms with Christ's embrace of us and neither that he neither condemns us for our sins or confirms that things are okay enough. He gives us his affection in spite of our faithful track record or our transgressions. Rather than looking to the law as a plan for ourselves or to create for ourselves our own redemption, we look to a person, Jesus Christ, which leads me to verse four. Look at this verse. It says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. A few things I want to point out about this. He's inviting them to remember the person of Jesus Christ, their Savior. (coughs) Remember him. Remember him, how he came at the fullness of time. Listen, God's timing is always perfect. He's never missing his entry into your moment, okay? He's not like somehow waiting on the wings, going, wait, I'm sorry, I missed this great need. At the fullness of time, he showed up. He shows up. His timing is always perfect. And now I want to point out a couple ways that Jesus is not like us and some ways that Jesus is so much like us. The first way is that he's not like us. God sent his son. Now, in just a moment, he's going to say he sent his spirit. So there's a full trinity in this passage. And first he's saying, Jesus is not like you. He sent from me. He's me himself. He's God eternal. Our sonship will have a beginning at the point of belief, right? Every person in this room, at some point, you come to believe this thing, and you became, you, you knew you were a slave, and now you're like, I'm a child of God. Jesus has always been the son of the Father, forever. He has eternal life. His son, his spirit, is not sent as delegates of God, but God himself, giving himself to everyone who would believe. So eternally existed. He's not like us. We had a beginning. Our belief had a beginning. Jesus is unique. He's divine. He's God himself. In Philippians 2, it says, though he had equality with God, he didn't consider it something to be grasped. He laid it aside, becoming a servant so that he might show off his glory. And because of that, his name is above every name. So he's eternal. He's divine. And when you look at Christ, you're looking at God himself. When people looked at Jesus, he's like, you're looking at the Father. That's how he explained himself. In John chapter one, it said, we beheld his glory full of grace and truth. We beheld the only begotten of God. 
And over and over, Jesus described himself like this. In Colossians, it says this about Jesus. is going to be on the screen. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things. That means before any of this existed, he spoke it into existence. He's before all things. And in him, all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He's ultimately unique because he's, he was before any of this existed. And so one of the reasons that they need to remember their Savior is Jesus Christ and that we do today is that we can get so consumed with the other things. So much of Christianity misses the person of Jesus Christ. And at the center of this gospel message where he's pleading with them, don't be enslaved by these things. He's saying, remember this person, your savior. He's at the center of all of it. And at the fullness of time, he came and redeemed everyone under the law. He's also like us. He's not just unique. He's also like us. He was born of a woman. Jesus is a man. He's high and exalted, yes, and he's gentle and lowly. He's a perfect high priest in that he knows exactly how we're tempted to sin. There's no temptation that you've ever faced that he's like shocked by. He's not surprised. He's not, he's not overwhelmed by it because Jesus made himself a human and was tempted in every way as we are, yet he was without sin. Hebrews chapter four, it says this, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet here's how he is unique. He's like us, but he's also unique. He never gave in to those temptations. Not once did he bend he perfectly fulfilled the law of God. And so he was born, he was sent from God. He was born of a woman to redeem. He came under the law to be a perfect redeemer for everyone who was under the demands of the law. He's like us in that he was born under this law. And it goes on to say after that verse that I just quoted, so we should draw near to him with confidence. That's the response to this reality. We should be able to come to him and, and get in his presence and say, Lord, I need you. I want to be around you because he's like us and he's able to sympathize with us. So let us draw near with confidence. So he's like us in that he was born under the law, except for he successfully kept everything perfectly. There was nothing he, he didn't do that the law commanded. There was nothing that he did that the law forbid. All of it, he got right. He's the only person in history who's ever done that. John Stott puts it this way. I'm sorry to quote him a lot. He just had a lot better things to say than me this week. So the divinity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, and the righteousness of Christ uniquely qualified him to be man's redeemer. If he had not been man, he could not have redeemed men. If he had not been a righteous man, he could not have redeemed unrighteous men. And if he had not been God's son, he couldn't have redeemed men for God for, or made them the sons of God. And so ultimately, in all of these ways, Jesus is uniquely God, uniquely human, uniquely perfect and righteous and is able to do what we could not do for ourselves. And so what did he do? What did he accomplish in this amazing work that was uniquely destined for him to fulfill. Here's what he accomplished. He made us his sons. Sorry, ladies, sons. It doesn't mean you're excluded because in fact, last week the passage says there's no longer male or female. There's no longer Jew or Greek. Every person 
In, in this culture, only sons would be able to inherit anything. And so right before this, when he says, he, there's no longer male or female, when he calls all the, male, all the females his sons, that means you get everything that the sons get. <laughs> Isn't that good news? The invitation to remember Christ and his identity and ultimately to remember what he accomplished, that he made us heirs and sons. And so our invitation as we read this is to remember our sonship. The reality that it was pleased by God was pleased to give us himself. When he uses this illustration of the kid who inherited something that was under a guardianship, he's saying, look, he owned everything. He just behaved like he did it. In other words, he wants us to see that he's given us the ultimate gift of himself, the highest and greatest thing. Because you are sons, you're heirs. I means you own everything. There's nothing withheld from you. There's nothing good that he's not giving to you right now. Ultimately, he's offering you the best treasure, the best gift of all, his presence. C.S. Lewis put it this way, God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. In other words, if you're looking for some blessing, some material thing, some absence of suffering. What God wants to offer you is himself. That's what he's offering you. He's offering you this stamp of acceptance and approval and his presence so that you can be in his presence and be his child. He makes his home with those who love him and keep his word. He makes his home with you, as John 14 says. The redemption and adoption of us as children means that we've been redeemed. We had been slaves and we were brought out. That reason that we'd be invited to remember our slavery is so that we could accept this reality of our sonship and never drift away from it. What God has done for us. We're no longer a slave. We're no longer depending on our behavior to secure in God's presence. No longer afraid of our adoption before him. He's placed us into his family. All of us, every single one of us in Ephesians are described as children of wrath. And so he takes his enemies, his natural enemies, the ones that were opposed to him. And he said, I'm, just gonna, I'm not going to just put you on my team. I'm going to put you at my table and put you in my family and embrace you as my child. So what does this mean? It says it this way in Romans chapter 8. It says, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. A few things. If we're to really embrace this reality that we are sons, that means that we reject the spirit of slavery. He didn't give that to us. We reject that. We reject this spirit of fear. And that there's a right place for reverence and awe and that kind of fear of God. But it should drive us towards God in love and adoration. Not away from him. We reject the spirit of slavery. We reject the spirit of fear. We didn't receive those from God. And there are things in this world. There are voices that would lead you back to this place where you would be afraid for your salvation. Where you'd be concerned about the things that you've done. And in every place that that cries out, if you truly belong to God, there's some part in your soul that's saying, Abba, Father, Dad, 
Dear Father, and that's what it means to be God's child. The Spirit has been deposited into us, and it constantly is crying out, Abba, Father, dear Father. It transforms our prayers to the prayers of a child. A child who has and will inherit everything. A child who trusts in the love of the Father. It transforms the way that we see our mess. I don't remember where I heard this, but it's definitely not original to me. The, the Spirit cries out in this way, that not, oh no, I've made a mess, I never can let my dad know, but oh no, I've made a mess of things, I need to call my dad. I need to call him. I'm in trouble. I, I, the spirit of slavery that leads to fear is I'm in trouble. I can never let my dad know. But the Spirit of God crying out in our hearts is I'm in trouble. I must call my dad. The true evidence of faith in the life of a believer isn't how well you're pulling it off. It's how constantly you're turning towards God as our Father, as your only hope. It's this complete trust fall into God's acceptance of us based only on Christ Jesus, not on what we could do. And so I want to pose this question to you uh, that I'm totally taking from Scotty Smith. I love this pastor. He's been such a dear pastor to my soul with his writing. He wrote this on his blog. It says, do you have the hope of sonship? Does the Spirit of God whisper a confirming witness in your heart that you are legally adopted son or daughter of the living God, that you've been already declared righteous in the sight of God? Will you inherit the new heaven and new earth? Are you an overcomer? Next slide. There's only one way to be certain. You've abandoned every attempt to have a relationship with God apart from the person and work of Jesus. Indeed. Are you trusting Jesus in this very moment as the great overcomer, the one who overcame sin and death for you? That's the only way to be sure. Because you're either trusting in something that you can control or something God has done for you. John Wesley, who, amazing man of faith, was the son of a minister, was a minister himself, pious in every possible way. He was serving in the slums. He was serving in orphanages. He was visiting prisoners. And all he's fasting weekly. He was a really good man. And on this trip to the United States, he comes into this church service. He hears the gospel presented. And in that moment, he realizes that his salvation in his mind was also works added to it. And the way that he... He describes this pivotal moment. Now, he was in ministry before this and ministry after this. But this pivotal moment, he describes it as, I began to trust in Christ and in Christ only for salvation. It was given an inward assurance that his sins had been taken away. And for so many of us, the lack of assurance that we feel creeping in, the accuser and the reason that he has a foothold is not because we think that, that uh, too much of ourselves is that we think too little of Jesus Christ and what he's accomplished. So many of us that need that inward assurance, we lack it because we're still standing on some Jesus plus something that we must do. And it will always leave you wondering and guessing and questioning and fearing and wondering, am I a slave or am I a son? I can't tell. I don't know. And so I want to ask you this question. In conclusion, it's this. Do you prefer slavery to sonship? Most of us know the reality of what Christ's done, and it's the only way that will ever be enough before Jesus Christ. If you don't know that, let me just declare to you once again. 
Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. He came born at the perfect time, born of a woman, sent by God, under the burden of the law, and he lived it perfectly in order to redeem those of us under the law. And through his death and resurrection, he suffered in our place. He paid all of the price for our sins, and he offers to us redemption that we couldn't purchase for ourselves. And so there's two options laid out in this passage today. Either we're behaving like slaves or we're behaving like sons. Two options. Slavery, on the one hand, could be any system of self-management that would lead to exhaustion, disappointment, and ultimately enslaving yourself. You lose your ability to make decisions because all of them are in allegiance to this strategy for saving yourself. And it leaves you in three kinds of frustrations. It leaves you frustrated with yourself because you're never enough. Anybody ever feel the lack of their willpower or lack of self-control because you've worked your fingers down to the bone and nothing you did was enough? No amount of good could outweigh the bad? There's not some cosmic scale of justice that you were trying to to gain, and in all other ways, it's going to leave you frustrated with yourself. And so if you come into this room very much frustrated with yourself for all the ways that you haven't lived up, I really have good news for you. Christ is enough. It also will leave you frustrated with others. If you veer towards slavery and these rules by which you can make yourself blessed It will also leave you frustrated with others because they're not trying as hard as you. They're not living by the same rules as you or they're thinking that they need to work in the same ways that you need to work and you will look at them and think, why can't everyone live the way that I live? Why can't they feel the weight that I feel? That's what slavery looks like, frustration with yourself, frustration with others, and ultimately it looks like frustration with God. Because people who expect to be rewarded for the behavior that they produce, God will never be enslaved by you. Your good behavior will never enslave God to do something for you. He doesn't work like that. And so when something comes your way, and it ultimately will, there's going to be disappointments in this life. You are going to be frustrated because you think that God owes you something better than what you got. What God owes us is his wrath, and what he gives us is his mercy. And any other equation where we think that he owes us something because of how we've tried to serve him, it's going to leave us frustrated with God. It's going to leave us frustrated with ourselves, yes, and with others, yes, but ultimately we're going to look at God and say, I don't deserve this because you have some map in your mind towards the life that you deserve, and that's the anti-gospel. It is not God's way. God's way is come and be affirmed, not based on what you could do, but on what I've done. The other option is this great invitation. I can't imagine anyone preferring something other than this. This invitation to be a child of God, to be a person exactly where you are, to be right in the presence of your Father all the way in your shoes. You're not trying to be better. You're not pretending that you're worse. You're just exactly where you're at. That's the invitation of sonship. You don't have to be someone other than you are. And in that place, you realize that you're an heir. Everything belongs to you, ultimately God himself. It does come with responsibility being there, but it comes with ultimate and great blessing that you could not afford, that you could not earn, that no amount of effort 
would be able to attain. And it allows us to be right where we are in this moment and be present with the Father. That's the invitation of God the Father, to be his sons, to be his children. So why would we avoid that invitation? I really am asking this question. Why would we prefer slavery to sonship? It is perplexing, isn't it? I was reminded this week uh, of the prodigal son who comes to the father and says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like a slave. But it is perplexing. Look at this quote from John Stott. We can certainly understand the language of the prodigal son who came to his father and said, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants or slaves. But how can anyone be so foolish as to say, you've made me your son, but I'd rather be a slave? It's one thing to say I don't deserve it. It's quite another to say I do not desire it. I prefer slavery to sonship. The invitation of God is for us to embrace this, and it does require us looking at ourselves and saying, this is never going to be enough. And that kind of surrender is hard, especially for people who've been counting on themselves for their whole life, thinking that it would be enough. Maybe that's why you prefer it. It's something you think you can control a little bit better than you could control God. <laughs> you have to give up control if you come to God as a son because he will not be enslaved by you. He will not be. The gospel invites us to see ourselves as children, sons, women, men, as children of God. It transforms the way that we see ourselves and our frustration with ourselves. It transforms the way that we see others. We see others and ourselves in light of what God has done and what he could do in rather than what you have done and what you want people to do. It transforms our worship. We worship him not as slaves, but we come to him as children, glad to be in his presence, not as dutiful workers, but as his kids. I love the way that William Cooper, the hymnist, uh, who wrote several great hymns, wrote about it in love constraining to obedience. He wrote it like this. How long beneath the law I lay in bondage and distress. I toiled the precept to obey, but I toiled without success. Then to abstain from outward sin was more than I could do. Now if I feel its power within, I feel I hate it too. Then all my servile works were done, a righteousness to raise. Now, freely chosen, in the Son, I freely choose his ways. And the last verse says this, to see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice. It changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. This idea of inheritance and our adoption, the promise of the Spirit abiding in us, crying out, Abba, Father, is what we want to turn our hearts to now in worship. I want to end with this passage from 1 John. Our invitation today is for you to see this love that's been displayed. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God and so we are. The reason why the world does not know him know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Right now, there's a limit to how we can see this father's affection for us. 
There's all of our experiences we bring to the table, all the times that we've been disappointed. There's all the lies of the accuser and of your own pride that there's some other way. There must be some other way. But Christ is inviting you to see what kind of love the Father has lavished on us that he would call us his children. And my prayer is that the voice of the Holy Spirit in every person today that's believing, the deposit of God's presence in your life would be crying out, Abba, Father, saying yes to what I've proclaimed today. That it would be louder than the lies of the accuser. That it would be louder than your own attempts to avoid failure and pursue good. That it would be louder than every dark murmuring that this world would have to offer you. Let it be louder, crying out, Abba, Father. So today, as we come to the table of communion once again and remember Christ's sacrifice for our sins, we take it and rejoice. We rejoice that in it, every piece that this morsel represents Christ's body being broken and every bit that his blood being shed for us represents, we receive it. Not because we earned it, but because he gave it freely. Let's pray to that end. Father, thank you for this, your word, and I pray that it would be sealed in our hearts and that today those who do not belong to you would hear the first invitation to come and to receive you as Father. Father, I pray that those who do belong to you would hear the call of the Spirit saying, Abba, Father. Dear Father, dear Father, those who are at the end of their own hope would see you as their only hope. Those who are still run through their options would run through them quickly so that they wouldn't be enslaved by their previous life. I pray all of this for the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.